You're listening to the BFOX and B Frank show. Big news in the world of college football where as of right now, as of this recording, we are still going to have a season. Um, but there is a, there's a bit of news that sent some, some shockwaves within the college sports, certainly college football world. Um, Pac-12 football players releasing a statement that was essentially a list of demands um, in order for them to play in the upcoming season, um, released it on Players Tribune under the hashtag WeAreUnited. A um, lot, of, lot of points to, to unwrap with it, um, the racial injustice, dealing with that, um, you know, dealing with health and safety concerns that the players had, um, and, you know, economic equity, among other things. Um, just, it's kind of, as you're first seeing this um, and then going through everything the document outlined, what was kind of your, your initial reaction? I will say that I hate the phrase list of demands, but there's like no better way to put it. It's like a, a caveat to play, maybe. I, there needs to be a better phrasing because if you just are scrolling on Twitter and see Pac-12 athletes, hashtag we are united. And then it says like Pac-12 student athletes have their like list of demands to play this fall. You're like, oh, fuck these guys. Like I am completely out on it. But then you dig in, you actually read the damn thing. And you're like, shouldn't these already be guaranteed? Like a vast majority of them, as you wrote in your article on the site, are very much basic rights. Like, I laughed out loud when I read through, uh, which one was it? The third point? No. Whichever point had due process. It just said due process. And it's like, is that not a basic right as an American citizen? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't the student athletes have the same thing? Yeah, the, the very last, there, there are four total points. They kind of broke them down. We can, we can start at the last one, but that was... That was the one that encompassed a lot of things that were like, yes. what are we talking about here? And yeah, I, I kind of had the same struggles. Like they are officially demands. I, I called them requests a couple of times in the blog, um, just trying to soften it a little bit. So you're absolutely right. If you're just, if you're just scrolling and not taking the time to read something in depth, which is Twitter, like welcome to the internet, just going to read the headline and nothing else. I can see how you'd be turned off. And there are a lot of boomers I saw online um, yesterday and today seeing like, fuck these guys are getting a free education, like super replaceable. Who needs Pac-12 football anyway? Completely missing the point as you yep. would expect, but. Surprise. It's like, th this is coming to a head because players are being pushed to play in a pandemic with very little regard from schools themselves, um, conferences about their actual safety. Really the only thing that's happened so far is the move to conference only games to, to do what they can to keep it in a regional model. And a lot of these guys are, you know, it's, it's not clear exactly who is at risk. There's no standardized testing for the, for the most part, there's not really uniform standards. So a big part of, of the proposal and what they're leading off with is like, we need a better plan in place. If we're, we're not saying we're not going to play football at all. Like that's still on the table, 
but we need something from you to show that you actually care about us like as human beings we're not just fodder that you're going to throw out there um to make money which again like is what that's that's the position that um you know the pac-12 is in now because that is what college sports is for the most part just right exploiting unpaid athletes and like when when you are trying to get people to play and you are pushing what is in effect liability waivers and you're not allowing players to secure representation to kind of review that and make sure everything's above board like it's not hard to see that you're running a very shady operation yeah it's uh it's it's just not like a lot of these things aren't crazy and you feel like they should have been in place already or there should have been plans in place like we we've been talking about this this started in march i mean it started well before then but this whole chaos of like shutting everything down started in march you should think that from that day forward the plans were all right plan a is what happens if the virus is still here how are we going to play these games plan b like if it gets really bad, what are we going to do? What does like a, a postponement look like? Plan C is a shutdown and best case scenario is the virus is gone and we're just playing regular football. Like how, how is it that hard that we haven't had these plans in place already for uniform testing, making sure everyone is on the same page, making sure there's protocol in place when you are awaiting test results uh, how many guys should be in the locker room at the fitness center working out, running drills, all this stuff at the same time. It shouldn't be so just ambiguous and, and out there. Um, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but it's like now more than ever, student athlete is the most oxymoronical tag or moniker that there are in all of sports or all of you know the world even. If you, if you want to go that far and uh, it just, it's just mind blowing to see how this goes. And like you said, or like we both said at first glance, you can be like, ah, entitled athletes at it again or whatever the boomers want to say. When you actually read it though, it makes way too much sense. And is it in some cases, the least that these leagues in the NCAA can do. Yeah, there, there are definitely some some requests or demands, whatever you want to call them here, that are, you know, make, make you take a step back and go, whoa. Yeah. Right. Um, but for the most part, I feel like those are the ones that these football players are trying to help out student athletes in any sport, primarily the, the non-revenue ones. Um, basically, kind of asking the administrators, Larry Scott, who – is just a dumbass in general um everyone to to kind of take steps to make sure that we're not seeing athletic departments get completely gutted um you know all all the non-revenue sports um like one of the things they specifically mentioned was stanford who has cut 11 uh varsity sports and you know pretty pretty easy to to scapegoat coronavirus for that but like Stanford in and of itself is not hurting for money. And there, there are definitely things that these schools can do to make sure that they are saving sports and saving 
the opportunities that that these athletes are are allotted. And the, the other big request was the like fifty percent uh, revenue split, which obviously like that's that's a big request. Um, you know, it's not a big request when you consider how many years of unpaid labor that would be making up for. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're kind of going beyond themselves and and making that a request across every sport, um, just trying to do what they can to, to make sure everybody's taken care of. They have the spotlight on on them because they are the the big revenue sport that is about to presumably have a season start. Um, they know the conference needs all the football revenue um, badly. And I mean, this is, this is kind of their time to, to make a statement and, you know, make these demands that college athletes have, have kind of been wanting, but for a multitude of reasons, haven't brought to the surface. This all makes you wonder what would have happened if Northwestern football players had won the right to unionize. Like, yeah. where would we be right now if that had actually happened? What, what would be going on at this current point? It would be a completely different ball game, and this wouldn't be a list of demands. This would probably be negotiation, like straight-up actual negotiation for what's going on. Um, I think the tactic is to kind of get the shock and awe in terms of like the 50% revenue split. I love the 2% for of conference revenue going to, or whatever it is, like breaking down into other sports so that they can, um, you know, they don't have to cut anything like we saw Stanford obviously do. We've seen a lot of schools. UConn is another great example I like to look at because their football program is just a goddamn black hole. It's not good. It hasn't been good for a while. They're now an independent in football, I'm pretty sure. And it loses like 19 or $25 million a year. And instead of cutting football, they cut like track and field and cross country and some other sports. Um, the 50%, though, to get back to the original point I was at, the 50% feels like you ask for your, your wit, like, the highest possible thing you can ask for without people being like, all right, get out of here. This is ridiculous. And it's still may like, there's still a lot of people that are going to say it is, but it's a starting point. Like it's a negotiation point. If, if the conference or whoever the universities break at all, they've got a starting point now. And every other league across the country has a point to start their negotiation at. Yeah, and in quick clarification point, that that two percent of revenue they're asking for was for you know financial aid for low income black students ah, yep, and yep. additional community initiatives. So again, you also a great idea. Yeah, you can't just look at this and be like, oh, these are just players being selfish. It, it is absolutely not that. Right. It, there, there's a lot of it where they're looking out for themselves because a lot of their basic rights are not being given. That's not being selfish. That's just being a, a smart person, realizing the system is set up to take advantage of you and do something about it. And then they're looking out for, you know, those less fortunate in their community as well, um, which, which is extremely admirable. It's the more you read it, I feel like the harder it is to make the argument that you can't like what's going on here. Like it, it just is for a greater cause. Like, yes, are the, 
football players going to cash in a bit? Absolutely. And do they deserve to? Of course, because when you've got 60, 70, 80,000 seat stadiums that fill up every Saturday coming to watch these guys, that make nothing. It's hard to say, hard to argue they don't deserve a bit. And I mean, we've beaten that, that argument to death because you and I have talked about it at length. Um, I'm pretty sure Rothstein tweeted out a, an article in defense of not paying athletes yet again, which is just like, like today? Uh, I think it was yesterday. I have to, I have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, and it was, uh, you know, just continues to be the never ending cycle that, uh, until there are, there is change in the leadership at the NCAA, we will not see change on this. I don't think unless, some sort of legal system forces the NCAA's hands, which has yet to happen. Yeah, Rothstein has just gone full milkshake duck at this point. Like he used to be just the the fun tweet guy, and now it's just like everything anti-player rights. Like you shouldn't uh, transfer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but at the Part of this that makes it a little more unique is that it's just exclusively at the conference level. Um, so if a lot of this went through, um, Pac-12 technically wouldn't be a part of the NCAA anymore. Um, but like a lot of the guys said, it's it's kind of going into a uh, just conference model anyway, so that wouldn't necessarily be the end of the world. Um, but I think that gives them a little more leverage, certainly in this situation, especially considering, you know, how the football season would be set up as just conference only anyway. So if players aren't playing, you're losing out on 100% yeah. of potential revenue. There is leverage. Like there, there is absolutely an argument and like something that needs to happen because we are a month away from when football should air quote should be starting. I assume we get an extra week off the front of the season. Um, but the, the exact tweet, it was a, an article from the San Diego union tribune about uh, the, it's called it's time for college sports to tell athletes to take it or leave it. And Rothstein's tweet was, it's important to continue to do more for college athletes, but it's also important to remind everyone of all that they are already getting. That's, that, that's like, that's, that's literally what I was referring to in the blog. It's like, you point to all these things that are non-monetary, right? Like it doesn't matter. You are just setting money on fire to put like hot tubs in your, right like locker rooms or, or shit like that. Um, there is an argument I know of like nice facilities get recruits. And I understand that, but do you need to do it every five years? Also, <laughs> every three there, there's years? A, there's a middle ground. Between right. Having like a whole fucking lazy river in your <laughs> athletic center. Not naming just, names. And just like working out in a shed. Like there, there is, right. there's a little ground there. Um, and, and again, like, sure, players would prefer these ridiculously nice facilities to 
lesser ones and they look great on social media and I don't doubt for a second that they help with recruiting. But if the trade-off you're doing there is, all right, we'll have a slightly less state-of-the-art but still very nice facility, but with instead of lighting the rest of that money on fire, we get paid like what we deserve to be. No one says no to that. Yeah, it's hard. It's it's hard to argue. I wanted to play devil's advocate for a second on facilities because I actually do think it's important coming from a school that tries to recruit against bigger schools with better facilities. I know it is a sticking point for us constantly. That said, I think we do just fine without it. Yeah, and then like they're they're cool. I have nothing bad to say about the facilities themselves. It's just like when you're diverting all of your money into that and then right. well, we have no money to pay athletes. Like, yes, you do. It you likes- come up with the 270 million out of nowhere to buy a facility, but then all of a sudden the money is, the well is dry when it comes yeah, to when, uh, compensating people. When players come around asking for, you know, a dollar or like get a meal from someone, then it's just the end of the fucking world. But right. it's, yeah, it, like schools will do whatever they can to spend money. So, you know, they, they're not having huge surpluses. That's why, like, the vast majority of athletic departments are operating at a loss, but that is of their own accord, almost completely within their own control. Yeah. yeah. It's almost always for tax purposes. Make it till you make it, I guess, but like let's let's help the people out who get you to the make it part. Yeah. Yeah. Um so it'll it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of this. Obviously, we almost immediately saw the negative pushback um from one of the Pac-12 coaches, Nick Rolovic, um, over from Hawaii where New. His- his teams were so much fun to watch and then like has not coached a game yet at Washington state. He's already picked several players off the team for even associating with this. Um, and it's, it's hard to look worse than he did in the initial, um, you know, kind of reaction and, and some of the, the quotes that were coming out, um, basically, parents and players paraphrasing kind of what he said to them, but he then doubled down on it, comparing it to a, like, don't negotiate with terrorist situation. It's like, my guy, like, think about wanting to coach after this season and, like, use your head for, for one second. I, I mean, his Twitter avatar should tell it all. He's got the, like, safari hat with the Wazoo logo on it. But it's, uh, I don't know. It's it's just a bad look all around. Like, what the hell? What, like, what are we doing here? How, how, how does he get to have a job, let alone how does he make millions of dollars doing this job? He himself is a former college athlete. Is this like a, oh, I wish this would have been around when I was 
when I had it, but since it wasn't, I've got to act like a hard ass and be, that's not how it was in my day. We just played because we love the game, that kind of bullshit. Or is it just a genuine, like, I don't want this to happen because it'll affect me. And so now I'm going to be selfish and kick players off the team. Well, the challenge here and kind of why it was on the players to step forward and, and be the ones bringing about this change, because everybody else at, in kind of the, the college sports structure is incentivized to maintain the status quo. Right. Uh, like the, the players are the ones being taken advantage of. Coaches, for the most part, have an amazing deal. Uh, somebody who I'd, I'd be interested hearing their thoughts on this because there is a 95% chance he puts his foot in the mouth is Davo Sweeney, who yes. has always been very against paying players, despite the fact that he himself has been printing money over at Clemson um, off of them. And I like, he, he's had a, a fairly rough off season as it is. Um, yeah. But I, I know there are, there are a handful of coaches out there who have made the unwise decision to be very vocal against paying players. Um, and if big J journalists are not, you know, asking them for their thoughts again, now that this is a major story, then I mean, turn, turn in your press pass. You're not doing your job. Right. They're, they are as complicit or as bad, whatever the right way you want to say that is as, the coaches who already are against helping out the guys that help them make millions upon millions of dollars and, you know, watch a sporting event basically for a living. That's, I, that's as simple as I can put it. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it's really, it's really all I had to say on it right now. If you want to read more, I did put, too many of my own thoughts on the uh, on the website about it, but obviously a little bit of a developing story. So we'll probably have have more for you in the the coming weeks, depending on what comes of this. But I would say right now, very good chance that Pac-12 does not play football at all. Um, just knowing the power structure of the NCAA and the right. the egos involved there. Can't wait! Can't wait for the Rose Bowl. Yeah, that's that's how Indiana will get in. It's just two big time teams, <laughs> and they'll play it in Lucas Oil instead yeah. of playing it in Pasadena. Yeah. But hey, it's okay. Forty years from now, nobody will remember. We'll have the Rose Bowl sweatshirts. No, we'll that's all that okay. matters. No one will have to point out that it was Indiana versus Rutgers in Indianapolis. <laughs> my, my personal hell. The only two teams that don't test positive, like the last week of the season. Yeah, it, yeah, it will be some shit like that. Um, <laughs> all right, so it's it's tough to transition from that because again, like it's not looking great for the season happening um, in general, let alone you know the the Pac-12 specifically. But here we are. Until the season is officially canceled, we will keep acting like it will happen. So we have the, the second half of our preseason top tens. Um, obviously, if you're scoring at home, that'll be five through one this week. Very quickly, in, in case we, we missed out on, on any listeners last week, do you want to just remind the folks what your uh, 10 through 16s were? Yes, sir. Number 10, Oklahoma State. 
number nine, Notre Dame, number eight, Texas A&M, seven, Florida, and number six, Penn State. Yeah, we, we, we had the, the big difference on the SEC West rivals. I had Notre Dame at 10, Florida 9, Oregon, which I don't know now, 8, LSU 7, and Penn State 6. So the, uh, the VFOX B Frank Bowl will be LSU A&M this year if that happens. Yes. Um, yeah, but going to get right back into it with your number five team. Number five, we'll head back to the SEC. I'm going Georgia. A lot of changes offensively. Jake Fromm obviously off to the NFL. They lose their top two rushers in DeAndre Swift and Brian Heron. Um, Jamie Newman, transfer from Wake Forest, adds a little more versatility at quarterback. So that'll be – I'm intrigued to see because I think he showed some good flashes. Granted, it's against ACC competition, so take that as you will three returning offensive linemen. They've got George Pickens back who had an awesome freshman year. Um, Zamir white. It's going to be, looks like he'll key in as the new running back. Um, so the offense should be in decent hands. It all just really depends on Jamie Newman's play, which I think we can, we will see some consistency from him. Uh, if not brilliance, I'm not sure. Uh, Jake Fromm was a very immobile quarterback. Jamie Newman is quite the opposite, so really contrasting styles now for Kirby Smart's offense. Then you head over to the defense where they are absolutely loaded. Eight of the top ten tacklers return. Um, They've got just so much going on. That secondary is packed Four returning starters, it looks like, uh, if I did my math right. And then Jordan Davis on the defensive line is a stud. I like the defense. I think they're going to be up there uh, in terms of shutting teams down. Don't expect many high-scoring games for Georgia this year. I don't think the offense is going to have the firepower it has in the past couple of years. I also think the defense is going to be good enough to hold teams under you know 20 points per game. Yeah, I mean, they, they returned a lot from the best-scoring defense in the country. Yeah. That's going to win them a lot of football games. Uh, yeah, it's it has to be tough for for any Georgia fan, Kirby Smart, for just getting reminded over and over and over again that you chose the wrong QB. Seeing how how good Justin Fields was at Ohio State, um, and comparatively, Jake Fromm still fine college quarterback, but given the choice between the two, it was it was fairly obvious they you know chose poorly, but. That's that's kind of where Jamie Newman comes in, very high on him, and he, he like you said, gives him that versatility on offense, the ability to to run the ball in the quarterback position. RPOs now are an option, um, but it's it's really going to depend. Their ceiling's going to depend on how well the offense can come together um, under Todd Monken. Um, but Jamie Newman should be should be good. It's kind of a double edged sword because you can say. He was great. It was against ACC competition. He also was working with a lot less talent around him at Wake Forest. So True. Take that however you will. Um, if, you're, if you're a glass half full or glass half empty kind of guy. They did not have a good offensive line last year either. Like, there, yeah. there were – Newman was running for his life a lot of the time. Yeah. It, it, it certainly helps when he does have that, that running ability to, to make plays on his own. 
Um, but yeah, he'll, he'll have more support here at Georgia, which I think is a big reason why they are so excited about having him in the fold. Um, and, and yeah, like you said, the defense is going to be absolutely stacked. Um, possibly one of, one of, if not the best front seven in the country, um, Lily Carey and Tremont Walker at pairing up should make life hell for a lot of opposing quarterbacks. Um, yeah, it's, this, this has the, I mean, who the hell knows what the season's actually going to look like, but in a vacuum, this is, uh, if everything goes right, this is the playoff team. Yeah. Whatever playoff means this year. Um, yeah. Uh, I actually had them as my number four team. Oh. Um, penciling them in, in the, uh, the, the playoff spot early in the season. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. We, we already have a we, – we said it's going to be the same five teams probably, but the, the order will be interesting. There, so. I, I, I had a hunch that I would have a different number five than you, but it's, it's pretty close, yeah. I, I think. I mean, the, the five and four team, I'm sure you have this team as four, um, unless you're, uh, you're really going out on a limb, which sometimes happens. Sometimes, but I'm undefeated. <laughs> I've got Oklahoma at five, um, and it's like Lincoln Riley's had one of the the best starts to a head coaching career in in recent memory. It certainly helps at Oklahoma, where you have veteran quarterbacks um, for the first two years: Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, two Heisman trophies, and runner up. Not too shabby. This is. His biggest test, um, not that he's dealing with a shitty quarterback, but just that not a lot of experience there. Uh, presumably Spencer Rattler um, will, will be the starter as a redshirt freshman, and the, the offense is going to be electric again. No matter who's, who's under center, Lincoln Riley knows how to make the offense hum. Uh, Kenny Brooks is back after breaking the 1,000-yard mark last year. You're going to have four offensive linemen back, Creed Humphrey anchoring it at the center position. Um, the, the other big guy you have to replace besides Jalen Hurts is obviously CeeDee Lamb. Um, and not necessarily a, a clear-cut favorite for that, but Charleston uh, Rambo is a, is a great option that Rattler's going to have. Um, the, the question mark as it always is for Oklahoma, especially when you're comparing them to the national elite, is going to be the defense. And the, the image that's seared into a lot of people's minds is Joe Burrow, LSU, rolling up nearly 700 yards of offense on them in the national semifinal. For a lot of the year, they were pretty solid. And compared to... Yes, where they yes. No, they were. I did not mean to. I did not mean to make the face. They were solid. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, it was first-year defensive coordinator Alex Grinch, who came over from Ohio State, um, did for the most part a good job. Can't help being embarrassed against one of the best college offenses of all time. I'm willing to cut him some slack there, but they they've got nine starters returning from that team, and as you always say, continuity is key especially in football, um, and they're going to have a, a pretty solid linebacking duo, Caleb Kelly, Deshaun White, um, and, and just the overall continuity. And 
the uh, the guys they return in the secondary, and that's kind of Grinch's positional roots. He was at Ohio State. Um, you should have a a lot more success. They're not going to be an elite defense by any stretch of the imagination, but it will be much better than what you typically associate with Oklahoma defensively. 100% agree. Uh, they, like you said, they're my number four. The offense is built for Spencer Rattler. Like there is not outside of the guys that have already come before him. I don't know that there's another guy, maybe Justin Fields probably fits pretty well in here, but I think Rattler is just that explosive big play kind of guy that likes to take chances. And that's what Lincoln Riley likes. Kennedy Brooks, like you said, off of the um, injury from Trey Sermon, got in and had some had a really great season last year and now is poised to do it yet again. Any other year, he's the best running back in the Big 12, but Shuba Hubbard is still in the conference, so he is sadly going to have to take second place, and it's, it's a pretty wide margin still. Um, like you said, Charleston Rambo's back. Continuity on the offensive line, so you've got a young quarterback that's not going to be running for his life. That was a big issue last year for Jalen Hurts. A lot of issues with that offensive line. The front five weren't great, and it caused some problems just in terms of him not being able to throw it during his best career passing season. Uh, Defense, Ronnie Perkins is an absolute stud on that defensive line. It'll be fun to watch. They return their two top pass rushers with six and six and a half sacks. DeLaren Turner-Yell, one of their top tacklers in the secondary. I mean, they, they are loaded for a Big 12 defense. They're going to be very solid in the overall perspective of the country defensively, which is what they need. Because if you can hold the Big 12 teams to 28, 30, less than 30 points, you're going to win a vast majority of those games, especially with an Oklahoma uh, offense. Right. And it's- Basically, what you said with, with Oklahoma State, that's kind of the, the magic number you're looking for, for for life in the Big 12, kind of holding opponents in that range. Very different in other conferences, but this is Big 12's built on offense. So if you can just stem the tide a little bit, it's, it's a lot like tennis, really. You, you just you score every time. You have, to, you have to break serve and, you know, stop the other team from scoring sometimes, which – obviously is an oversimplification, but the last several um, Red River rivalries, um, Bedlam, it's always seemed like those type of games, like a team needs to get one stop and they usually have a a great shot of winning the game because no one can get one for the most part. So that West Virginia game a couple of years ago with Will Greer. I mean, that, that is case in point of big 12 slash Oklahoma football defense in, in the last couple of years. There, there have been many a game where I've been rooting against Oklahoma, whether it's Bedlam or that West Virginia game or something, and it's just so frustrating because you largely cannot stop Oklahoma's offense. Right. So they're going to be elite again this year. Um, to what level? Hard to say. It, we, you can't necessarily expect Spencer Radler to walk in and – be a, a Heisman Trophy candidate from the jump, they're going to be very good, um, no matter what on offense, as long as Lincoln Riley's in the building. But 
having a, a more balanced team than they usually do is, I mean, it's only going to help them. Definitely. Definitely. Just the ability, I think, to already have that high quality, almost star running back to take the pressure off of a young quarterback is huge, especially behind that experienced offensive line. So like, what did he run for a thousand yards last year? 1042 yeah. Jalen hurts ran for 1400. And most of that was of his own accord. So like he Kennedy Brooks should be rushing for about 1500 yards this year. And most of that would be to take the pressure off of Rattler and really just open up the offense. So even talking through it now, you can see how easily air quote easily, like, like you said, an oversimplification, but easily the offense flows together of run the ball to open up the passing game, pass the ball to open up the run, the draw plays. And like all of a sudden, how do you stop Oklahoma's offense? Yeah. So basically anybody with open coordinator positions out there, we've, uh, yep. Got you covered. Give us a call. Um, we we will take a pay cut to play the players, guaranteed. Yeah. Happy to do that. Happy to do that. Um, yeah. So Georgia's my number four. Not not really anything else to to add that we didn't already talk about. Um, so yeah. Number three, I am going with Alabama. Okay. Uh, Mac Jones taking over they do return their top three running back so I expect to see a steady dose of the stable mates going after it for Nick Saban Najee Harris Brian Robinson Kellen Robinson all should be getting they should all at least have over 100 carries I mean I'm sure Najee Harris will get the majority and it'll break down a little differently but those guys all our workhorses, Jalen Waddell is back. Devontae Smith is back. Uh, continuity on the offensive line, like we talked about, four returning starters. So there are weapons. There's some things to work with despite losing guys like Jerry Judy, Ruggs, to, uh, to the NFL draft. There's a lot on offense. And then you look defensively. Um, they've still got Dylan Moses and Shane Lee. The secondary is going to be young. They did – They've been young for a little bit, and then they, they've started a bunch of different guys at different points because of injuries and, and everything that's gone on. And then this is probably the most experienced D-line they've had in a couple of years because it seems like a revolving door there the past three or four in terms of just NFL talent. So you can't ever doubt a saving coach team, especially one with good running backs and – that has a pretty solid front seven. Yeah, there's there's more question marks with the defense than would be typical. Um, and, and part of that and part of why you have a revolving door is that guys get their shot, they show out, and they immediately go to the NFL. That's not necessarily a bad problem to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it's a great situation for Mac Jones to be walking into. Um, because as you said, Harris is back. The bulk of the offensive line is back. So they are going to give it to Harris early and often. Um, and, and he'll be an absolute workhorse. And like Shuba Hubbard, he is a running back who should be in contention for the Heisman. Um, and, and yeah, you, you've got Smith back. You've got Waddle back, who also happens to be the best returner in the country. 
Um, they they were just comically stacked at receiver last year. So even losing Judy and Ruggs, they are still absolutely loaded. Um, and it's I don't know if things really got any easier for opposing defensive backfields. Um, yeah, you, you said Dylan Moses back, um, Christian Harris back, linebacker position. The front seven will be solid. Will they be able to get enough pressure on the quarterback to make up for any deficiencies behind them in the secondary? Going to be one of the bigger questions. Um, in in Saban's slight defense, they were beset by a lot of injuries defensively last year, and that's a big part, in my opinion, why they weren't quite as – you know, dominant or even effective as they would be in a typical season. Um, so that's that's something that you would hope they can avoid. Um, but with a pandemic raging, who knows what's going to happen in terms of injuries and, and guys missing for for a variety of health reasons. But one of the the bigger things that you don't typically see with a Saban team in the Alabama era is you know stability of coordinator. Um, they they did not lose anybody to head coaching jobs in the offseason, and that's something that you almost take for granted at this point, um, just kind of rebuilding, um, you know, offensive or defensive coordinator as, as guys leave to take head coaching jobs based on how well they've done at Alabama. Um, I mean, like, just look within the conference itself, but did not happen for the first time in forever this offseason, so – that's a, uh, you know, that's a pretty good sign because it's not like they were a dog shit team last year. Like they're still a very good team. So not having to deal with that internal change, um, you know, as used to it as Nick Saban might be, I'm sure he's happy that he's, he's kept his, uh, his coaching room intact. This could be like the most returning, not just players, but staff he's had in a long time. That's that's a, I mean that's a testament to what he's built there, but it's also a testament to what to expect for this upcoming season. Yeah, it's his, his coaching tree is is pretty ridiculous. I, I'm sure a small small part of him is a little disappointed, so he doesn't have another person that he can just beat relentlessly as he does to all of his former assistants. Um, but I'm, I'm sure he will happily make that sacrifice for, you know, some continuity. Um, Next year, a spot's going to open up and we're going to have coaching rehab come back. So I wonder who it's going to be. Yeah, Sark back to USC. Give me Kevin Sumlin running the offense. Oh, man. He could. He could. You never know. Worked out pretty nice for Lane Kiffin. Yeah. Um, yeah, Alabama is my number three as well. So – back on track like like we never left uh number two is i debated this one a lot i i really did and i wasn't sure which way i was gonna go as i was taking notes on each team i was like oh maybe maybe i have them backwards but i'm going clemson at number two wow. trevor lawrence you the, you the big time guy now Travis Etienne, Lin J. Dixon, they lose four offensive linemen from last season. Uh, the defense is going to be very solid up front. There are a lot of questions in the secondary, but 
Xavier Thomas is back. Niles Pickney is back. Justin Foster. Um, offensively, they've got most of their playmakers, uh, vast majority of the playmakers. They do lose T. Higgins and Justin Ross, which we discussed, but Armani Rogers is also back. So there's a lot there for Trevor Lawrence to work on. He looked pretty uns- just poor. I guess is the best way to put it. Like he wasn't bad, but he wasn't anywhere near the expectations that we had for him in his sophomore season. This year, he is basically playing for his NFL draft stock. We, we know he's going to be a first round pick. It's does he go number one or does he fall a little bit? Uh, does Bill Belichick get a nice little gift under the Christmas tree or what, what's the deal here? But he's got to be better than he was last season. Uh, where are the numbers that I had already? 3,600 yards, eight interceptions, 400 attempts, 65% completion percentage. You'd like to see all those numbers up a bit, 4,000-plus yards, under eight interceptions, and a better completion percentage closer to 70, just knowing what he's capable of. But it's on – I mean, it's, it's on the defense this year, really. And, and last year, Clemson probably had the best defensive front in all of college football, they should be close in terms of front seven this year. Depend, they're not as deep, and it really depends on the play of guys like Pickney and Xavier Thomas. But I, they're as good as any in college football. Yeah, and I, I think as far as Trevor Lawrence is concerned, expectations were so high; it would have been very difficult for him to not be somewhat disappointing last year. Um, he, he definitely could have done more to impress, but I think we just have him and Etienne coming back to, to headline that offense. That's going to be a nightmare for just about anybody in the country, and especially since they're going ACC only. It's hard to think that there's going to be anybody out there outside of potentially Notre Dame to challenge them. Um, and I was, I was like you. I had the, the biggest gap in terms of perceived quality in my mind was between Notre Dame and the rest of the top 10. And then the closest was right here at the top um, between Clemson and Ohio state. But I, I have Clemson as my number one team. I think the, wow. The, the, the defense. Oh, like it's shocking. No. <laughs> the, the defensive line is, is going to be elite again. Um, James Skalski is back after finishing just behind Isaiah Simmons for the team leading tackles last year um, to run the second level. It's kind of a, a recurring theme as we get through some of these top teams. Not the most experienced secondary um, outside of Kendrick, but you would hope that with all of the talent they have up front, um, they're going to be able to get pressure on the quarterback early and often. Um, Tyler Davis, another guy, all ACC as a freshman uh, should continue to build on that. But I just, I'm, I'm having, I'm having a hard time seeing Clemson get challenged by anybody this year um, within the ACC. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine anyone there really doing anything because there was such a huge gap already last season that we saw and I think the majority of the ACC got worse in the offseason I mean like North Carolina improved but yeah 
it's not it's really the like you can think of. Right. Florida State, I mean, they're so blah. Like, it's, it's hard to say anything about Florida State because you re- really don't know what you're going to get. Like, yes, they are talented, but they've been talented for the last five years and haven't done anything with it. Um, like you said, Notre Dame looks to be that team that can potentially challenge. But and again, I think there's a pretty sizable gap between Notre Dame and Clemson's abilities, especially considering Clemson's offensive strengths and Notre Dame's defensive weakness. It's going to be very tough for the Irish. Yeah, so my number two, your number one, and a, a shock twist is again, you're not typically the big time guy. No. It's Ohio State. And the aforementioned Justin Fields, who I would say has to be the the front runner for the Heisman Trophy um, start of the year. He yeah. was phenomenal last year. Um, obviously, big loss, J.K. Dobbins, and they, they've been beset by injuries at running back. So another guy we already mentioned, Trey Sermon from Oklahoma, may end up coming out of that pack um, as a grad transfer. But that'll that'll be something to keep an eye on for sure. Um, Chris Olave is back at receiver. Garrett Wilson as well. Julian Fleming's a freshman. There's a lot of potential there. Um, so there there's going to be no shortage of, of weapons. And with Ryan Day at the helm, I, I feel like this is – going to be an absolute offensive juggernaut once again um it's 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 hard it's hard to envision anything else working out especially when you consider the losses that they incurred defensively not saying they'll be bad defensively but it it is it is a lot to overcome and you know it's it's an inexperienced secondary outside of sean wade uh, who's going to be asked to do a lot in terms of leadership. Um, no Kuda anymore, obviously. And then up front, you're losing Chase Young. You're losing Malik Harrison. Will they be able to wreak as much havoc in opponents' backfields as last year? Probably not. So it's going to be more challenging for Ohio State's secondary. Um, but you, know, you, you, you look to guys like Jonathan Cooper, Tyreek Smith, to, to try to make an impact up front. Um, and, and, you know, you're not going to equal the, the tackle for loss numbers that were put up last year because, you know, Chase Young is superhuman. But you, you got you to do what you can to fill the void as, as best as possible. Um, it's, it's a lot of upperclassmen. Um, or it's, it's a lot of upperclassmen that are getting thrust into, you know, starting positions for the first time um, and you know it's you hope that at a school like Ohio State they're ready for their opportunity but that's that's the big question mark Justin Fields makes up for a lot they're going to be the class of the Big Ten once again um, I would not give Michigan much of a chance as is tradition but yeah that's I think they're a half step behind Clemson on paper. Yeah, it's it's the losses up front make it tough because Chase Young had 16 and a half sacks last year. Like you're not you're obviously not going to replace it, but how are you going to come close to changing that because that is 100% and in the most literal terms a game changer. 
it completely yeah. switches offensive game plans in, you know, what direction are we going to run plays? How are we going to double chase young? Like, are we going to chip with a tight end? What are we going to do here? Uh, they still, they also have master Teague on offense as well. Aside from having an all American type name, he is very good at football. Uh, um, they returned three of five starters on the offensive line. So offense, I'm not worried about. They've got a ton of talent still there. And like you said, when you have Justin Fields, who should be the front runner for the Heisman, and depending on how he plays this year, could legitimately see himself be the best quarterback in the country over Trevor Lawrence. It's a hot debate, I'm sure. And, and both guys have valid arguments on each side. Um, but like you said, what's going to happen with that front four, front three, whatever defensive base they're going out of this year, given, given the losses? Secondary also a little bit young, losing guys like Arnett and Okuda. But if there's anything we've learned, it's that Ohio State and these premier programs reload more often than they take a step back. Um, so like you said, older guys coming in, stepping into the fray, they definitely – are ready to take their chances, whether or not they can, they can live up to what they need to. So I, Justin Fields is the reason I gave Ohio state number one, like Trevor Lawrence is their neck and neck. And honestly, if you look at the running backs, it probably should have gone to Clemson just because I think ETN and Dixon are better than master Teague and Trey Sermon. But then you, you add in the rest of the offensive factors. And I think Ohio state's going to be a bit better defensively, I don't think it's going to matter as much. So I'm going Ohio State. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, Master Teague is a great name. Tough Borland defense. Another yep. phenomenal name. Um, yeah. The, the new Twitter battle this year that every, like, objective person is going to absolutely hate is going to be Ohio State Clemson, namely the Fields-Lawrence debate. It was Ohio State, LSU all of last year, and there were so many times that I wanted to gouge my eyes out, but fortunately for all of you resisted, um, despite the urge, it was, uh, yeah, just the word. There, those, are, those are some tough fan bases online. I haven't necessarily seen the same vitriol or annoyance from Clemson yet, but I'm sure that's going to be ratcheted up into overdrive with the just Fields-Lawrence debate alone. Right. That is that is something now that I'm thinking about it for the first time, I'm very much not looking forward to. It's coming. So. Mentally prepare yourself. That is fun. Uh, yeah, so who knows if this season will happen, but if it does, that's uh, our top ten. That's our top ten. Yeah, <laughs> could be first and last, but yeah. For now, for now preseason edition. Um, yeah, I guess it's it's kind of changing by the day. What the status is, no one really knows still, um, as evidenced by Pac-12 players having to come out and, and like figure your shit out. So right, we'll see. I'm hopeful. I'm gonna stay optimistic. Against all odds, there is hope. That's all I can do. Um, yeah, so college basketball, a lot going on, too. The uh, deadline for withdrawing from the 
NBA draft is tonight as we're recording this. Kind of the prevailing notion you would think with the pandemic going on is that a lot of the, you know, fringe guys or guys that normally would be wrestling with this decision the most would stay in the draft given the uncertainty as much as we hate to say it about college basketball having a season this year and wouldn't you rather just go and get paid as soon as possible but we're really seeing the opposite yeah it's been surprising and exciting because the g league offers come around and then you know we've got guys going to europe to play instead of staying in college and there's just an opportunity to play pro and we have seen a good majority of these guys come back to college basketball when the sport is supposedly facing its toughest, its toughest test and is on its deathbed and all this. You've got three teams, basically the top three teams in the country have seen most of their best players coming back. I mean, Luca Garza is back at Iowa, Macy Oteague and Jared Butler back at uh, Baylor. Villanova got Jeremiah Robinson Earl back. Like there, there are top players coming back to these teams. I I was curious when you said that who you were going to include in your top three, and uh, Iowa snuck in there. Which yeah, I have I haven't sat down to do it yet, but they're top three of the top teams is what I should say. Okay, fair, fair. I'll I'll allow that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think as of now, Baylor is my number one team. Right. Let's let's start with Baylor because you're you're getting you're getting Teague back, you're getting Jared Butler back. Massive. Um, yeah, they were they were number one for a lot of last year. In in most cases, it would be a situation similar to you know a, a Dayton or a San Diego State last year. It's like that was a phenomenal season you really hate to miss out on what that tournament run could have been because, you know, there's, there's not necessarily that type of sustained success at a school like Baylor, but now they can absolutely be thinking like that. Yeah. They probably got the best backcourt in America at this point. I mean, we forget Davion Mitchell's there as well. Question is how do they replace Freddie Gillespie who was basically out of nowhere with last season, they still have Mark Vital and Tristan Clark. So there, there's a lot of guys, a lot of talent still on this team. It, it's it, – is Scott Drew a good coach? Sure as hell seems like it. I was going to say, that's the real question. And, yes, the answer is yes. I was getting mad online yes. because I was, I was reading Twitter – like, I do this to myself. I was reading Twitter comments um, under one of the – I think – or, or maybe it was just an aggregation of the two announcements. Um, yeah, it was, it was like Goodman or somebody talking about, you know, it's Scott Drew took over 17 years ago. It was the worst program in the Big 12, um, probably the worst Power 5, and now going to be number one, presumably two years in a row, with potential to do more in March. And the responses, my God. You would have thought the guy just walked into, like, Duke post Coach K and immediately torpedoed into into the ground. Like no one wants to give him credit for anything, and I, I I don't I don't necessarily want to take up the position of a Scott Tree defender, but I find myself here, um, and it's like 
you it's it's a it's a funny meme and i get that but you can't like you just can't argue it yeah like you can't not give him credit right they uh I mean, it, it's been the Baylor renaissance, basically, over the last 10 to 15 years that we've really seen. And now, you know, if this is 2005 and you're talking Baylor, you're like, oh, yeah, they're in the Big 12, I think. They exist. Right. They're, 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 they're in Waco, right? They're in Texas somewhere. Now, no one bats an eye when you talk Baylor. You're like, oh, yeah, they got a great basketball and football team. Because that's just what we've seen over the past few years. They have really stepped up on both both sides it's it's a testament to letting a coach build a program there are obviously circumstances and situations that don't really allow that but scott Drew was given the keys and the ability to really build something up and now he will probably have the number one team at some point again next season probably when they head to or when they were supposed to head to newark new jersey and there will be no fans allowed so that is uh, that is a rant for another time that I just wanted to sneak in there. You but a, you got to get a fat head of yourself, Ned. Get yourself in the crowd. Yeah, somehow, some way. But Baylor, I can't remember the stat last year when they were on game day. Which I saying game day reminds me of how bad college basketball game day program is. Just how ridiculous it is. I mean, there were like three separate top 10 matchups outside of like the SEC or the big 10 that they just refuse to show on game day. But that's neither here nor there because TV. I mean, going to be honest, game day came to Indiana my freshman year when it was uh, number three, Indiana playing Trey Burke in Michigan and they're number one. I had no desire to go. So I did not. Yeah. Um, But it's, yeah, it, it's just night and day with football. Like, I mean, it, you lose credibility when you go to North Carolina Duke when North Carolina ha- has a losing record. Right. You, yeah. That, and the, the huge issue for years and years and years, which they stopped doing, fortunately, used to be they would set the game day schedule before the season yeah. started. So a lot of them were like – Kansas against Texas with Mike Cabongo when Texas was just underachieving the likes of which you've never seen before. And it was like a 35 point game. Right. Um, they adopted the football model a little bit, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. That's, that's never something I'm like, like, Oh, I, I have to watch game day before sitting on my couch for 12 hours. Like I'll, I'll sit on my couch, but like, Watching game day, game day is not, not appointment. Yeah. Um, the whole point of that was on game day when they were at Baylor, they had mentioned that Baylor was ranked number one for the first time in I don't know how long. Um, maybe ever. I should have looked this up. But anyways, that's all Scott Drew. Like, those are his teams. He has the record now for – Long, like most recent time, Baylor's been number one. Longest time, Baylor's been number one. Number of times, Baylor's been number one. He's got it all. Yeah, it's it's hard to imagine walking into a worse scenario than what he did. Um, and I I doubt and I would hope that we ever we never see something like that again. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, the the big big reason a lot of people don't want to give him credit. I think is that we're seventeen years later. They're like where the national titles or big 12 titles and like 
buddy, yeah. pass that question to literally anyone in the Big 12. Like, it's it's just Kansas and no one else wins the titles. Um, and people, people were talking about losing to Georgia State in the first round, which I'll admit was not a good loss, but the, the rebuttal of, well, Tony Bennett lost to a 16th seed was immediately thrown out. It's like, come on, what are we doing here? Um, yeah, so. God bless those arguments. Many rants over. So, yeah, yes. I think Baylor's going to be very good. Yeah, it's, they are clear, like, likely number one team, obviously biggest challenger to Kansas in the Big 12 to – you know, knock them off their perch. Like I, I get that the the streak is is technically like not what it was, but it's still been their conference. So anything Baylor can do would be huge for the school. And again, a, a credit to to Scott Drew, who is a good coach. Once and for him, all, we have declared it. He is a good coach. You need to get him on the show just to ask him that. I, I like, know. All right. Thanks for the time. <laughs> That's it. Four yeah. minutes of Scott Drew. Yeah. Are you a good coach? Yes. Okay, cool. Like the Jay Billis 96 feet thing. Yeah. That's, One question. Yeah. Just just walk very quickly. Um, all right. So other, other big returners within the Big Ten, um, two teams that I think you throw anywhere in the, the top 15 for next year, maybe both in the top 10, but – Illinois and Iowa both getting a big boost. So start with Illinois that's closer to home. First, Asumu comes back, and then Kofi Coburn. Cock Coburn. Sometimes, yeah. Unfortunately, an uh, unfortunate Freudian slip for Rothstein when he was projecting next year's starting lineup and typing out Cock Cockburn. He's probably a guy who hates that it's pronounced Coburn, too. Absolutely is. Again, it should not be. But different discussion there. Right. Um, so just from a basketball perspective, both those guys coming back, two best players for Brad Underwood, who's really starting to build something at Illinois, uh, and really took off last year, turned a corner, whatever, whatever cliche you would like me to use. They're both back. Illinois has got to be thinking big for the first time since the uh, – the mid Bruce Weber days. Yeah, I so I was writing about it this weekend, and I was trying to think when was the last time an Illinois team had expectations. It's been a while, probably around when Scott Drew took over at Baylor. A little after, but not too far off. I'd, I I grew up an Illinois fan, and there were uh, there were a lot of frustrating years. It was always you you start off kind of hot in the non-conference you lose to one or two teams you absolutely shouldn't and then you just forget how to play basketball in the Big Ten season um and this is back, back when I wrote the uh kind of the what if about John Shire is like that's that's really where it diverted because you have the almost immediate success with going to the national title game um and then Weber still has a lot of critics. They're Bill Self's players, um, whatever. And then after that, they they won a game the next year with D. Brown and James Augustine, holdovers from that team. Lose in one of the better 
tournament games of all time um, against Brandon Roy in Washington that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, lose that game. That was that was the last NCAA game that Bruce Weber won in his tenure. And we know what Trier did at Duke, and it's kind of just all downhill from there. Um, how that could have potentially turned the program, but got that. Then you have the gross era, which was gross. The, yeah, the, the joke is just... It's <laughs> too easy. It was, it was on the tee. Um, yeah, but this is... It was, it was a couple ugly years of Underwood um, kind of trying to play the same style he did um, at Stephen F. Austin. And as we discussed on the show, changed the style that last year they were following less. They were playing more under control. And wouldn't you know it, the on-court product improved drastically and they were winning basketball games and they were a legitimate basketball team to be taken seriously now they're even more that yeah Coburn I mean is a legit like shot blocker and rebounder he is probably now the best in the conference I'm trying to rack my brain of who is still around in the Big Ten, but he... he the, the guy who should have won Big Ten freshman <laughs> of the year last year. Fair, fair. Um, he's a top three shot blocker and rebounder. They also bring, like, Desumu clearly established himself as one of, if not the best closers in the Big Ten last season. Like, it seemed like time and time again, Illinois was in these tight games late, and that's what you expect from a younger team. They're talented, but they're still going to be in these tight games. Every single time they needed a bucket, Desumu went and got it. And he can do it from all over the court, too. He's got great size, so he can get to the rim. He can shoot the ball. It is a big change, I think, from Illinois teams of pass. Now they bring in guys like Adam Miller and Andre Curbelo, who are two four-star recruits, top 50 guys that can come off the bench and help. You've got Bashanis Vili, who might slot in the starting lineup. I'm not totally sure. He did seem to lose a little bit last season out of like just fall out of favor a little bit in terms of the rotation, but he is a he's like a leadership energy guy that can certainly help. And when you pair him with Coburn in a bigger lineup, that is a scary front court. So I find it hard to see Illinois not slotting in as a top ten team preseason. Like, I, I think there are arguments to get them as high as number five. But when you consider, like, teams that won and lost, air quote, won and lost on this deci- on these decisions, there nobody won bigger than Illinois. Yeah, Illinois definitely was a winner here. Um, yeah, they'll, they're definitely right up there now in terms of contending for Big Ten title along with, you know, the, the likes of Michigan State still going to be up there, Wisconsin. Iowa, who we'll talk about in a second, um, but they're they're in that discussion for sure. Um, yeah, and I, th- I think it was against Michigan last year. Iowa had a tough game winner in the lane, and kind of the that sort of victory, young team over a, a veteran, well coached team like Michigan. Um, even though it's not Beeline anymore, still so much of the same core. That was that was really the thing in a lot of people's eyes that elevated them to a team to be taken seriously. Um, and yeah, when you can effectively recruit Chicago's elites, good things are going to happen. Desumu started that trend. Miller is going to continue that. Um, and 
yeah, as if, if Underwood can get any sort of pipeline from, you know, Chicago and the Chicago area that is going to vault him ahead of, like, I mean, Weber and, and Gross almost immediately. Because th those guys did sign Chicago guys, per se, and a lot of four stars and just, I mean, for lack of a better term, a lot of guys who turned out to be butts. So, right. A guy like Dosumu has already proven he is not that. Um, certainly hope Miller is the same way. These are higher level recruits than than anyone past regimes have gotten. You kind of exclude Myers Leonard because Robinson, Illinois is bumfuck nowhere. Um, it's Indiana. Yeah, it's well, yeah, that's true for a lot of the state. Uh, <laughs> but yes, and for, for those listening who weren't clear on who the Big Ten Freshman of the Year should have been last year, that is Trace Jackson Davis. Just want to make sure we're not we're not missing anybody with that reference there. You didn't have the Big Ten homerism I thought you would in the top five, so I needed to get you going a little bit in the no, basketball yeah. talk. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about IU football. I am eternally pessimistic about IU basketball. Um, until until Archie can can show me otherwise. Brief tangent, I guess. Now that you here we go. Uh, I like I I love the assembled roster um, and like Christian Lander and Trace Jackson Davis is not a bad answer at all to a Dosumu Coburn. Um, it's just I've seen a lot of talented guys come through the last few years and not a lot has come of it so I'm I'm nervous from that respect but they should be a tournament team if a if a tournament happens so yeah it's top 25 which I guess is is improvement looking for small victories well welcome to the the neighborhood of fringe top 25 teams that's that's fair um Luca Garza former IU recruit would have been nice to have him, but he is he is coming back to Iowa. Um, Jordan Bohannon is another guy who I feel like a good amount of people might have forgotten about considering he was injured so early last year and, and gets to come back, which is massive. Um, the, the cynics will say that Luca Garza has never finished on a team or has never played on a team that's finished higher than sixth in the Big Ten. What would you say to those people when evaluating Iowa's chances now that he's coming back? I would say that they return a vast majority of the core that has had the best finish of any team he's been on so far. They're going to get better. They get healthy as well. Um, you can't have the injury woes they had two years in a row. You'd assume uh, they also bring in Aaron Euless, who's going to be a stud. The problem is you also get another McCaffrey with that. So there are two now on the line, on the roster. Uh, Joe Toussaint should be playing over Connor McCaffrey. I will. That is like my one random stake my claim thing on oh, above all else in just like in terms of college basketball that has almost nothing that pertains to me in terms of what I care about or whatever. But Joe Toussaint is a significantly better player than Connor McCaffrey. He should be playing. And if McCaffrey starts over him, then nepotism reigns yet again. 
Uh, Bohannon's great. Frederick's solid. Wieskamp, obviously very good. They're going to score a billion points. So it's whether they can play defense or not. Um, they haven't necessarily had the depth to do that. It's more, let's just focus on getting the ball to Garza and shooting whenever we can. They, the bad news, I guess, for the cynic you had previously mentioned. Well, the McCaffrey. Just, yeah, the well, that's, that, I, I like that that's an automatic negative, just that there's another one coming. There is. Um, I actually think this one is supposed to be good, though. Patrick McCaffrey. Uh, the other bad part is this is probably the deepest the Big Ten has ever or will ever be because the league is absolutely loaded. And I don't think it's close in terms of any other conference who's the best in college basketball next season. I don't hate hearing that. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, last year was a weird year where the vast majority of the conference was just oscillating back and forth in between that, like, 6 and 11 seed range. And for the most part, those teams got better in the offseason. So you would naturally – rise up the seed line, um, going to have more teams battling it out, probably in the top 15, 20 in the country. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. And that's another reason why it's hard for me to get too optimistic about Indiana is because there's, there's so much that they have to work through. But I don't think you can overstate Jordan Bohannon's importance to Iowa. I think if you have him last year um, with Garza playing as well as, as he was, um, that would have been just – an electric combination. So I'm glad we at least get to see one season of that. Um, yeah. And the, the offense defense splits will just, I feel like be true for however long McCaffrey is at Iowa. I feel like we have this conversation every year. Um, they, they maybe string together two good defensive games in the non-conference. You're like, Oh, is, uh, is Iowa finally figuring it out? And then the answer is no. <laughs> give up like, 85 and 90 points in back-to-back games, like, yeah, probably not. But they will they will score on you early and often. Um, Bohannon, Bohannon is just so annoyingly good from distance. Um, it's, it's a problem, and obviously Garza can score inside, he can score outside. Um, I mean, he's just the prototypical college big. And was not last year's National Player of the Year, but – he has a, a pretty good shot to do that if he can, I mean, basically just replicate what he did last year. Like, even if he doesn't take a step forward, I would think that would probably be good enough. Yeah, unless we have another guy. I mean, Obi Toppin wasn't out of nowhere. People who watched college basketball knew who he was and knew he was going to be a stud. But I don't think to the, the level that he played at. So like, he, was, he wasn't being talked about like in a conversation like this. Right. Last offseason. Right. He was, he was not in the National Player of the Year talks in the offseason. But, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I'm just looking at Iowa's splits from last year. They were fifth offensively on Ken Palm and 97th defensively. And that's like – I just anecdotally, I feel like better than most years defensively. Right. I feel like it's almost always triple digits. They, uh, the only team worse in the top 40 with, an off- with a good offense and a bad defense was LSU, fourth offensively, 179th defensively. Yeah, and Trenton Watford came back, so LSU's going to be – And Javante Smart. Yeah, 
They're going to be solid in the uh, SEC again, too. Yeah. Obligatory SEC basketball mention. Check that off. Um, Done. Yeah, I, I, I agree. The, the Big Ten is kind of the, the best on paper as far as basketball is concerned right now. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's anybody's race out, out of those top four or five teams for sure. And I mean, not necessarily limited to that, but it's, it's hard at this point, especially with Xavier Tillman staying in the draft. It's hard to, you know, pick somebody as a, a clear cut favorite. There's, there's a lot to like about it. Several teams. Yeah. And like, where does Wisconsin slot in? I know they're in that group you were mentioning, yeah. but like, they were so hot and cold early in the season and then just were like phenomenal once Kobe King left. Where what are we gonna get from them? They're gonna they're gonna sneak up on people again, I feel like. because um, they they are as Wisconsin as they'll ever be, once yeah. again. Um, they're they're not flashy, they don't have the big names. And you saw it last year and just looking at the all conference teams. Um, I, I think it was they didn't have anybody above the third team, I believe. Um, and it'll it'll be more of the same this year. It's like we're we're talking about earlier off air. It's their their team is much greater than the sum of the collective parts. It's uh, just from the beginning of time to the end of time. That is that is what Wisconsin basketball is going to be. And Brad Davidson will forever try to take charges. And hit people in the nuts. Yeah. Give and take. Yep. Um, so any any more real basketball thoughts before we get to the heat checks in? Uh, there's some big guy, uh, big East guys back, Damian Jefferson and uh, Denzel yeah, Mahoney great. at uh, Creighton, which is helpful because they still lose Tyshawn Alexander. They'll be a top 15 team still. And then uh, Mamu's back for Seton Hall, so that – that was like the big piece that we kind of expected, but when you've got a European guy in a global pandemic, you don't really know for sure. Like Kevin Willard seemed pretty confident, but you don't, you can't say for certain. When I was in school, we actually lost a guy, Patrick Auda, his junior year, because he just was like, fuck this, I'm going to play pro. And he graduated early and just got the hell out. It was like, all right. You know, he, he had a ton of injury problems and was decent when he played, but, like, out of nowhere, was just like, yeah, I'm out of here. So you, you never quite know with those European players. But uh, I'm excited. I think this is going to be the best defensive team we've had in years. The question is, where does the offense come from? Um, Bryce Aiken's going to be good. Mamu's going to be there. What, is, what Miles Kale do we get? is to call Molson for real, the Canisius transfer. We got a couple freshmen. I mean that there's a lot lots of lot going on, lots to look at for, for us. It's yeah, it's it's certainly a, a big ass to replace the production of a guy like Miles Powell. So sad but true. It happens. You've you figured it out before, so I'm I'm confident Kevin Willard can do it again. Yeah, I honestly though, the last thought I have on that is I think that the figuring out how to replace Quincy McKnight is the bigger problem because he did so many things last year. He was great on defense, turned into an actual like true point guard, distributed. He was a legit secondary scorer with mid-range game. He shot like 90% from the free throw line, which 
for us is unheard of. So, uh, you know, he, he's a big glue guy that we're losing, big leadership guy. But obviously that's why you go out and get a guy like Bryce Aiken. Yeah, he could do worse. Do worse than him. Um, yeah, so speaking of, a lot of uh, a lot of additional reading you can do on the site. B. Frank broke down Mamu coming back, Seton Hall. Additional thoughts on Io and Coburn coming back, and of course, resident Jay Sam Norland got some thoughts up on Creighton's returnees and reasons for optimism there. It it could be a pretty good year for the uh, the South Chicago college basketball teams knock on all the wood yeah please it's possible obviously illinois included in there too so we have several former illini um yeah they they won't be annoying at all so never knowing that group not even a chance that's probably won't i won't hear from them at all um all right so each xm is happening we are on the precipice of conference play and recruiting has been going well for at least one of us. It has. You think got the, uh, the number six class in the country as of right now, just added another guy in the, uh, the last cycle. Yeah, we've, uh, you know, just looking at the roster and the way it works, I think, you know, we've, we've got to expect that we're losing Jay George. Uh, we lose, a senior center, and then, uh, you know, that'll get us to eight, two guys. So a third, knock out one of the lower-rated, lower-loyalty guys, and all of a sudden we should be in much better shape than last year. So grabbed a Juco center out of Pennsylvania, um, grabbed a point guard who is all offense, which I was hoping Jay George would be, but he's only led the team once in scoring. That is is a, a statement or something for another time. And then grabbed a power forward out of our backyard in New Jersey who should slot in nicely above some of the other guys. But I think all top 70 or top 80 guys, I think we're done recruiting basically. I I don't want to over recruit and and cause any issues. So I think we've kind of gotten everyone we need to at this point, but uh, I know things, things are a little different on your side of the ball. That they are. That they are. Um, so I just signed, uh, what was he, 61st. Got a, got a small forward coming in. Not necessarily a position of need, but got to a certain point. It was just kind of playing around with the crystal ball. I really need a shooting guard. And I was, I was leading for a couple separately. Um, there, was, there was a top 10 recruit that North Carolina had a stranglehold on. I wasn't touching them. Um, Tennessee snagged another one, so can't wait to play him in conference. Um, so this was this was the best I, I could do. He's a little he's a defensive minded guy, and if anyone can use some help on the defensive side of the ball, it is your Georgia Bulldogs. Um, we've we've got some uh, McCaffrey Iowa splits right now. We are where oh fifteenth in scoring. It's not even the best in the SEC, but. 267th in scoring defense. So Oof. my little uh, my little homage to Tom Crean. So I will keep mentioning until it is no longer true. But yeah, need need some help defensively. Got him. Um, there are a couple of guys 
that I'm already eyeing. Um, there's, there's a guy out of Georgia I know, um, but for the third cycle, I need at least one shooting guard, preferably two, because the worst player that got added onto my roster was also a shooting guard in addition to the one who I'm losing to graduation. So would very much love to, to force him out if at all possible. Um, so my team sucks less next year. Here's to hoping we see Brandon Bogan in a Georgia Bulldog uniform. Yeah, I, I lost out on uh, Alfred Dotson to in-state rival Georgia Tech. So hopefully get Bogan, who uh, yeah, looks like a defensive-minded guy. So the, the winds of change could be sweeping. Could, could get to a, uh, a football team that plays on both ends of the floor. And I hear that's good. That so, is Reports have said that that is a good thing, so we can see we can see how that works out. But uh, but overall, pretty year for Seton Hall so far. Um, flirting in and out of the top twenty-five. I noticed there was no graphic put up this year about our game since I lost by significantly less than thirty-two. I believe I actually covered. You did, and it, it had nothing to do with that. I just completely forgot yeah, about I, it. Yeah. It was it was still a win for you, so it wouldn't have been a bad visual, but. I, uh, I improved the, shall we say, margin of defeat by 28 points. So that is... Uh, that's, that's market a, improvement, as the, the folks would say. I mean, if, if that trend continues... I'll, I'm in I'll, trouble. I'll be winning <laughs> 52 in two short years. So that's uh, something to keep an eye out. But, yeah. I mean, you're, uh, you're more solidly into the NCAA tournament field if uh, fake Joe Lunardi who we'll have on the show next week, the latest bracket is any indication. So bully for you there. Just getting started uh, or just about to start in what is a uh, formidable, shall we say, Big East. Every team strength of record in the top 100. Yeah, it's going to be very tough. We are, I think, favored in just one game with pushes in three, and then we open at number one Villanova, a place where in real life, Seton Hall has won just once in the last 23 years, uh, 26 years, I'm sorry. And uh, Sim, I don't know if we won there last year, so the, the streak could be even worse. But I am not looking forward to that. If we could, if we could go three and two here, I, I actually don't know if it's five or six games that are being played. If we can come out of it with a winning record, though, I'll be happy. That's, that's really all that matters. Actually, don't know either. That would probably be good to know. I didn't. Sweep of DePaul is a must. I can't lose to them again this year. Yeah. <laughs> like if if you want if you want to be safely in the field, you need right. to sweep them for sure. Um, yeah, I I only looked at three games. I guess I could be playing more, but I was no better than a push in any. So I feel like I could fringe be. Um, yeah, push with Vanderbilt. I think that's about it. I could fringe be a uh, NIT contender, best case at this point, but I think NCAA is going to be out of the question. I, I think the the big goal right now is just um, to make the SEC tournament. That would be something. That's a good starting point. We uh, didn't we do like set goals or something before um, favorite against LSU. I guess they're trash. But 
weren't we didn't we set like goals before conference season last year or am i imagining that i believe we did i did not see them this year i, I did not see that this year either okay i'm not losing my mind just yet but that's yeah that's that's something to, to look forward to i i need i need a good start out of the gate because i'm not really playing anybody well outside of tennessee i'm not playing anybody that great in the first conference uh group of games but we'll see um yeah i mean next time we talk it'll be yeah we're having fake joe leonardi on because we'll be uh the league conference tournament time so yeah that's Lots gonna happen that puts them in perspective yeah we're uh we're gonna go through everything um and hopefully some more recruiting success there but on the recruiting front um we haven't talked much about national stories in general, but obligated to here because the question needs to be asked, just what the hell is Yale doing? I don't have an answer. Um, 32 commits on 80 offers, so presumably just everyone they can possibly offer, they are. And 32 is a pretty damn good percentage. I mean, the only other team that comes close to what they're doing is East Carolina with 15 commits on 23 offers, which is bananas because that is just an outrageously high success rate for how many offers they have out there. Um, I don't understand. I don't think there's strategy from Yale. I am intrigued maybe it's just to piss everybody off or to make sure that other people don't get the guys they want in the first recruiting cycle and then like he uh, spice up the competition in the transfer market but it's it's different that's for sure it's it's very much a shooter shoot mentality and yes if the goal is to piss off or upset other people success it seems like as people, the uh, the other little mid majors are not happy. Not at all. I can understand if you were going for those recruits. It, I mean, it's it's hard to say this without sounding douchey, but it affects me in no way. So right, I, I, I'm I'm not fighting Yale for the same recruits. So, um, nor would I be anyway. I'm just not in their region at all. It's. If you went for, like, the worst guy on your sheet, then maybe there would be some impact um, in the Northeast. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I like the, the bottom of my list gets pretty ugly. So I don't I'll know have to look on ugly. this next one. I, I was scrolling down kind of worst-case scenario because at a certain point, I was just like, all right, shit, all of my crystal balls are being taken. I'm just going to offer one guy until I'm the crystal ball leader and stay there. Fortunately, I ended up in the top 100 still, but – I did take a peek down there. There was uh, there were guys that would be worse than who was added onto my team at the end of the transfer window, which not good, not good, <laughs> very not good. <laughs> I mean, it goes to show that like people are getting mad at about what Yale is doing, and I get it to an extent, especially if you like actually wanted one of the guys that they got. Couldn't be me, but. <laughs> The average player rating is a five. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not like they're grabbing the best players all the time. They're grabbing guys that most likely 
And it, I, it even hurts them because you don't know. I mean, maybe they do know that, or they certainly don't know what the loyalty is, but there's a very real chance that even the best guys they grab now are going to be forced out because loyalty matters. So like yeah. it's as big a risk as it is a reward in my opinion. Yeah. And that like, like you said, they're not cornering the market on elite recruits. Like right. These, these are guys that they are not going to be pushed to national prominence by, you know, adding, even if it is like the eight best guys out of this group, it's still not going to move the needle in that way that significantly. Um, it's, it's going to be chaos for transfers. You're just yeah. going to add back, you know, at minimum 24 and they're not just going to offer everybody again in the last cycle and probably pick up, you know, eight more. Right. So like, it's, it's just going to be, it's just going to be chaos. And I, I guess that's, that's a team to keep an eye on. I have no, I, I haven't looked actually this season. I would imagine not particularly well, but there's six and six. Okay. That's, that is as as middle of the road as you can get. I will, I will readily admit. So, there's that. Um, if this is their so- best player is a freshman with low loyalty, so he is gone. Like, this is the thing. People are getting mad, but they're losing a guy that's rated a nine point eight, and he is their best player, so he's going to be out. Like, this is good for you. Yeah. I- Glancing in mind, the only high loyalty players I have are my best player and my worst player. So it'll be tough to nice it'll little be, spread there. It'll be tough to force my worst player out. That's what I'm saying. Not yeah. The I like. It seems like all of the shitty players who are added on at the end to fill out rosters are high loyalty, and that is that is really not putting me in the uh, the best of moods. But in, in defense of Yale, their strength of record is not great, but you know, six and six is about as middle of the road as you can get. Sometimes you gotta have a thing. Right. You know, your, your thing your thing's not going to be one of the best teams, it's not gonna be one of the worst teams. You're just the guy that recruits everybody. Right. That's that's all it is. And everybody in the America East, the NEC, uh, I'm trying to think of another conference up there. Um the, the, the Mac. Mac. Yeah. yeah. Everyone in those conferences, Patriot League, they're all going to hate us if they, when, if, when they hear this, Holy Cross, I'm sorry. Holy I, Cross, I'm sorry. I got Holy Cross a win this year. So how, how mad can you really be? It's true. Um, so there's, there's two more shots for you there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. That's, that's my, that's my spin zone. If I was like, running for fake Yale, that's, that's how I would spin it. If, if people are really mad about it, like maybe with the, just implement like a 10 offer per sheet max or something. I mean, what, what like, would make sense is just like writing into the formula. It's like, you can't have more than eight commits in a single season. Yeah. Like that seems like the most obvious one. Um, but I mean the easy, not- yeah, there, there are a lot of different ways you can go about it, but yeah. Cause yeah. Cause I think if you, if you limit the number of offers, then like you could just happen to miss out on everybody anyway. Um, but yeah, as long as it's like this, like I'm entertained 
if nothing oh, else. Yeah. This, I'm I'm not threatened by by Yale to overtake me and um, famous maybe, last words from us. <laughs> well, yeah, um, whatever. I will I will pretend to not care about the Sam if that ever happens. <laughs> um, yeah, I've experienced some personal growth, and I I no longer care about this this fake basketball world. But as long as Yale is below me, I do care. Um, but maybe maybe a potential non-conference opponent for you yeah. next year. Little Northeast rivalry. Absolutely. We'll host. We'll host. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I feel like that was kind of expected. I'm, I am starting to think a little bit about who to play next year. Um, assuming you want to keep our, our series going, um, unless you've grown bored of winning. I, I'll and, take, I'll take the win every year. That's fine by me. Well, you you got to come to Athens next year. Um, and then probably, we do if you do the Gavit games, trying to do the the Big Twelve SEC challenge at least amongst the the active coaches. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, gotta gotta come up with three other entertaining ones. Maybe Yale's on that list. There's gotta there's gotta be some level of intrigues. Like I would never have scheduled a, a Jackson State type if that had not been the exhibition thrust upon it. <laughs> there's no storyline there. There's no intrigue. There's no outlet to to really talk shit. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a possibility now. It's the B Fox and B Frank show take down Yale tour. That's all it is. Potentially. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you first just to see how it goes. And then I'll, <laughs> I, I may or may not join in. Oh, man. We'll, we'll have to see how it goes. But there's action. There's life. There are people talking. That's all that matters. Yeah. Many people are saying. They are. Um, yeah, so... That is uh, that's about all I had. We will be back next week with, geez, yeah. Haven't started conference play yet. Conference play will be done next time we talk. Um, and we will have fake Joe Lunardi on, who has done a great job on social media with, um, I mean, just breaking down the sim from every conceivable angle. Um, so we'll have him on to preview Season two, March Madness a little bit, the, the conference tournaments, because we'll have those brackets out at that point and uh, shoot the shit, see where it goes. Um, so that'll be next week. Hopefully we are still in, uh, in good spirits then, but you'll have, to, you'll have to tune in to find out. Fingers crossed. <laughs>